Well, this chapter um, strikes me as somewhat providentially timed in my own life. I thought this this Saturday coming up, this following Saturday, is my 20-year high school reunion. You all know that that makes you feel old. That's a bit of a milestone. That's a depressing milestone for some of us. Um, so the 20-year reunion. And, and Joseph right now in chapter 42 is facing a significant reunion of people he hasn't seen in 20 years. It's a 20-year reunion for Joseph too. Also, he's 38. I'm 38. That's weird. So I just thought I'd point that out. It has absolutely no exegetical basis in the passage whatsoever. Just an interesting tidbit. So Joseph is the same age, and he's going ready to go to a reunion. So that's kind of weird. Well, we are in the middle of a, a series through the life of Joseph. Genesis 37 begins that story for us, where Joseph has a series of dreams that are presently being fulfilled in chapter 42. You saw that as we were reading, right, that his brothers came and bowed down to him. And that was the substance of what he was dreaming in, verse th- in chapter 37. But they didn't like it then. They didn't like that he was having those dreams. And as one of the younger brothers, they certainly did not like the thought of having to bow down to their younger brother. So they thought about killing him, but instead just decided to sell him into slavery. And we pick up the story with Joseph in chapter 39, where he's prospering in the house of his Egyptian master, Potiphar. And everything that he's touching is successful, and he's, he's doing well as a servant and a slave. And all of a sudden, Potiphar's wife repeatedly pursues him and desires to sleep with him. He resists her, and that lands him in jail. And so he languishes in prison for a few years. He's exalted even there, as we've seen. He begins to prosper and bless the prisoners, and the captain of the guard gives him place in charge over all the soldiers. He interprets the dream of a cupbearer and a baker of the Pharaoh who are there, and then he, he sends them back to Pharaoh and just asks the cupbearer, hey, when you give this interpretation, just make sure that you please remember me because I'm here innocently, and if you can do anything to get me out, that'd be really great, you know, showing kindness to me after I've shown some kindness to you. But cupbearer forgets and leaves him in prison for a few years. In Genesis Genesis 41 last week, we saw Pharaoh begins having dreams, and this jars the cupbearer's memory, and he goes, oh yeah, I forgot about a guy who can do something about this Pharaoh. I know you've gotten all the magicians, you've tried to bring all your wise men to interpret these dreams that are going on in your life, but I'll tell you, a guy that I met in prison told me the interpretation of my dream, and it came true, and I think he can do the same for you, and so let's go get him, and so they do, and Joseph comes to Pharaoh, and we know the story. He interprets the dream. Pharaoh blesses him and brings him once again, just as it's been characteristic throughout his life, from his father to Potiphar to the captain of the guard in the prison to now Pharaoh himself. He's second in command, and he is running Egypt on behalf of Pharaoh, especially in this time of famine, which is what the dreams that the that Pharaoh had were all about, that there were going to be these seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. And we pick up the story with famine at intensity and the brothers facing this crisis. So that's where we are in Genesis 42. And Genesis 42 traces the story of a reunion between Joseph and his brothers that's on its way to reconciliation. And that's the beauty of this story is that these brothers are going to be reconciled, but that doesn't happen right here in Genesis 42. But it is a reunion that's on the way to reconciliation. God is going to put this family 
through a severe mercy, through a compassionate confrontation. And this is the way God deals with all of us. God puts all of us through severe mercy and a compassionate confrontation. So the main question this chapter is seeking to answer is, have Joseph's brothers changed? Has there been any significant change in these ones who sold him into slavery, who wanted him dead, who never wanted to see his face again? Had there been any significant change in these brothers? And so that can kind of help you understand why Joseph speaks a little roughly with them and treats them as any self-respecting CFO would, who's overseeing a famine recovery operation, say to these brothers, I know you. Let's see if there's been any change in you. So as we walk through this chapter, we're going to observe seven steps to the process that God uses to change people. All right? Seven steps toward biblical change. Because this is what's happening in these brothers' hearts in this chapter. They're beginning to change. And so as I walk through this chapter, as we walk through these seven steps, I want you to ask yourself, have each of these steps happened in my life? Because this is how God works to change us. The details are different. The process is the same. Okay? The details are different, but the process is the same. Here's the first step. Crisis. Crisis. The first thing that God uses to begin to change us is to bring us into crisis. And we see this in the first five verses of the chapter. Let's read those again. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I've heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy again grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Remember what happened to his other favorite son from Rachel? All right, so Benjamin is Joseph's closest brother. They're both the sons of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. He knows what happened to his first favorite, now his second favorite. When he puts favorites in the hands of these boys, things don't happen well. So Jacob's not willing to give Benjamin up. Verse 5, thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now in Genesis 42, God's going to begin to break Joseph's brothers by awakening their sleeping consciences. These are men who have no conscience in 37 chapter 37. They willingly sell their brother into slavery and then go and lie about it to their dad, send him into grief, and keep up the deception for two decades. Those are not men who have consciences. They can do a lot of bad things and let it go. But God, if he's going to change us, has to awaken our conscience and sensitize it to things that it's not sensitive to. And he does that through crisis. We don't change until the pain of change becomes worse than the pain of change staying the same. That's the way anybody gets changed. The crisis has to be worse than what we're going to change. That's, that's the way it works. So this, these men have been put between a rock and a hard place. They're facing famine. They're going to die. They've got to change. They've got to make something happen. They've got to do something. And you can see that they're a little bit hesitant, right, in verse 2, because Jacob says, why are you looking at one another? Why are you sitting around not knowing what you should do? You're older men now. You should know. What are you doing? You need to go to Egypt and get food. Are you crazy? We're going to die. And they're just, well, we don't know what to do. And Jacob has to push them 
to go. And he finally gets them to, I mean, this is serious dysfunction still going on in this family. They're a hard bunch of boys. They're not changing. They're men now, acting like boys. Remember, we haven't, we haven't talked about this much yet, but I just want to review these 10 brothers a little bit, their family history, some of the things that they've done which have contributed to their crises and their need for change. Years before, under the leadership of Simeon and Levi, two of Joseph's brothers, remember they deceived a village, they slaughtered all the men and took the women and children captive in retaliation for one man's violating his sister, remember that? And then Reuben, the oldest, had slept with his father's concubine. We saw that in chapter 38, or, or, or right before chapter 38, early, I'm referring to Judah. Judah had two sons so wicked that the Lord took their lives. We saw that in chapter 38. He himself had a fling with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, thinking her to be a prostitute. All the brothers except Benjamin had sold Joseph into slavery and then crushed their father's heart by deceiving him to thinking his son was dead. I mean, this is where these men are. And this crisis is awakening them. Think about the nature of the crisis. There's a felt need. There's famine. They don't have food. It has to get that basic. (laughs) It has to get that basic. Some people need to lose everything to change. Absolutely everything. They've got to go all the way down to the bottom where they can't even eat. And then finally they might change. Oh, I don't have food. I better do something about that. There's also serious family dysfunction. They've been living with that. It's only gotten worse. You can see that. The father has not gained any more confidence in his sons in 20 years. He's still protecting Benjamin. And Jacob hasn't gotten any better in 20 years. He's still the old favorite dad, just like every, just holding off Benjamin from the rest of his boys. This is my, I love this boy. Don't you take him from me. He's from my favorite wife. Got multiple wives, favoritism in his family. He's messed up still. And then there's got to be guilt racking these guys. Because think about where are they having to go? If they take up Jacob's offer and go to, to pursue food to get them out of this famine, where are they having to go? The place they sold their brother. They have to go to Egypt. And that whole trip there would be reminding them, hey, I wonder if Joseph is still alive. I wonder what's happened to him. I wonder if we're going to have to face that again. We've spent 20 years trying to run and get away from that crime, but it seems that we're payday someday has arrived. Crisis. It's where God brings all of us. First step of change. Number two, before I get to that, let me ask you an application question. What was the famine that God brought you through to show you your need for him? We all have different famines, but you went through some sort of famine. You went through a period. It could have been a short period of time. could have been a long period of time. But you went through a crisis. You went through a period of time, if you're a Christian, that you felt guilt, you felt your brokenness, you felt your need for Jesus. What was that for you? Share that with each other. Talk about your stories. So that's the first step, crisis. Number two, the second step, confrontation. Confrontation. We have to face, we have to deal with our, we have to come to terms and deal with uh, the crimes we've committed. So we see this in verses 6 through 11. 
And what happens is Joseph's now the governor of the land, it says in verse 6. And it makes, uh, Moses makes the point in writing that he was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. There's the fulfillment of the dreams in 37 right there. Then verse 7, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them, where do you come from? And he said, they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. Honesty. There you go. Good for a change. An honest word comes out of these guys' mouths. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Now think about this. It's been 20 years. Joseph is Egyptian. He's an Egyptian man. He probably has shaved his face. He looks 20 years older. He's got all the the garb of the right-hand man to Pharaoh on him. He probably speaks with an Egyptian accent. It's clear that he's that he's speaking through interpretation here. He knows, he knows the land of his father's thought father, but he also knows the land of Egypt. And so the, there's no reason to think these brothers would have any clue who they're talking to. And they don't. But Joseph recognized them. Verse 9, Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them 20 years ago. And he said to them, you're spies. Verse 10, they said to him, no, we're not. We've come to buy food. We're, we are, verse 11, honest men. That's a half truth (laughs) at best, right? They are being honest in verses 6 through 11. They have come from Canaan to Egypt to buy food, but no one would say to put on their their job description and resume, hey, we're honest men. (laughs) We have a track record of serious integrity and honesty throughout our lives. Nobody would say that that is what these men are characterized by. But Joseph confronts them. He's beginning the confrontation. He, and and when, we, when we are going through conversion and God is beginning to change us, we can feel like God's treating us roughly. Feel like we're getting slapped around a little bit. I'm trying to do right, God. Did you go, have you gone through seasons of that in your Christian life? You feel like, I'm trying to do what's right. And I, I, it's just not, nothing's changing. Stay the course. Stay the course. Our Father is wise in the way He confronts and the way He deals with us. And this is rough treatment from Joseph for these brothers. But is good planned? Oh, you better believe good is planned. Blessings coming. But they have to endure this severe mercy first. They have to endure this compassionate confrontation. They have to endure this period of testing, which leads us to our third step in the process of change confirmation confirmation this is what joseph is looking for out of these brothers lives he's looking for confirmation from them notice verse 15 by this you shall be tested he's going to test if they're they're saying they're not spies they've been telling the truth since they arrived in joseph's presence but he want, he's going to put them under a test and actually as we'll see in coming weeks a series of tests says, by this you shall be tested, by the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Now, you, we, didn't read, we read those verses initially, but he's referring to Benjamin because of what the brothers disclosed in verse 13. He said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan, and behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. So they think. The one who they think is no more is standing right in front of them. 
And this right here, they told the truth. They are the, they are the son of one man. They're not the son of one woman, but they're son of one man. They're all from Jacob. And the youngest is with the father, Benjamin, and they think Joseph's dead, so they don't mention him. So he says, okay, go get your youngest brother. There's only 11 of, 11 of you here, or 10 of you here. You have one more brother. You think, I'm gone, but I'm not. So go get your other brother. That's what he says in verse 16. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, you surely your spies. He's setting up a... Uh, a black and white A-B proposition. Listen, you go and recover Benjamin or your spies. That's it. So he's cutting, a, cutting right to the chase here, giving him a, a very clear deal. But then in verse 17, he put them all together in custody for three days. Obviously, they couldn't come to a decision. So verse 18, on the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you're honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine to your household. So now he's up in the ante, right? Since they didn't answer right away, saying, okay, one of you guys are going to stay behind then and bring your youngest brother to me, verse 20, so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. So they're leaving now. They're going to leave Simeon behind, and they're going as nine brothers now back to Canaan to get Benjamin to bring him there and hopefully recover Simeon and get all that they need. So if the brothers were the honest men that they claimed to be, then there should be some evidence of that, right? There should be some evidence. Some, give me some change. Show me. Do you love anybody more than yourself? That's what he's testing these brothers. Because what got Joseph sold into slavery was their absolute self-love. I will be exalted. No one will be exalted over me. I, I will not tolerate this younger brother of mine be, having these crazy dreams, thinking he's going to run my life. No, sirree, you're out of here. Your life for mine. That's the way these brothers have constantly behaved. Your life for mine. And now Joseph confronts them and tests them with, do you love anybody? Are you willing to give up and go get Benjamin? Are you willing to leave Simeon here and come back for him? Have you changed? Where's the evidence? Now, why this test? Why did Joseph arrange it this way? So that they got to go get Benjamin and they're leaving another brother. Well, Jacob's favorite wife, as we mentioned, was Rachel, the only one he really wanted to marry. And he had two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. And Joseph knew how Jacob felt about his mother. And he knew that in Joseph's absence, Benjamin would have likely become the, the object of his father's affection, which we've seen he was. And Joseph had every reason to believe Benjamin would be dead. Right? What happened to his father's firstborn favorite? Dead. They, so, so Jacob thinks. So Joseph would think, Benjamin's probably dead. That's why he's not here. These guys hate the sons of Rachel. They want him dead. They wanted me dead. Why wouldn't they kill Benjamin? They've had two decades to do it. Surely they killed him. And so he doesn't quite trust them that Benjamin's alive. He can't text Jacob real fast and see if it's true. <laughs> Imagine Jacob getting that text. Who's this? What's this number? It's Egyptian. I don't even know. I'm not going to answer it. It's, probably, a, it's probably, a, probably one of those ghost calls. 
All right, it's a bot. I'm not going to answer it. But Joseph doesn't know. There's no way he can know. So, but a second reason for this test is that Joseph really wants to see his closest brother. Do you think he'd want to see Benjamin after, tw- after 20 years? His full brother, not just the half-brothers that are standing in front of him? Sure. Remember, Je- Benjamin was the only one absent on the day Joseph was betrayed. So we see that Joseph is wanting confirmation that they've changed, and that is an appropriate thing for God to desire of us. When we've gone through crisis and we've been confronted with, by him, shouldn't he expect some, hey, let's reveal, let's, let, let's see some change here. When we experience crisis followed by confrontation, there is an expectation of confirmation. There is an expectation of fruit. So how is your life presently showing that your conversion to Jesus was an honest one? Was an honest conversion. I said, here's the... Here's the sins I'm seeking to fight. Here's the virtues I'm seeking to cultivate. Here's the image of Christ that I'm seeking to pursue. Can you name them? Can you specify your sins? Can you specify the ways in which you're currently doing battle with them? That's the appropriate evidence of change, confirmation that we have truly been confronted. Because if we haven't, if we're not going through that, then the crisis didn't do us any good. And the confrontation wasn't genuine. I remember Paul Washer sharing an illustration one time about this. And I'm sure many of you have probably heard this story before, but it's, so, it's such a vivid illustration. In some ways, it's pretty radical, but, but it gets the point across. He said he was going to preach somewhere one time, and he said, imagine that I came in the sanctuary and I was... Uh, he, was, he was telling the congregation this as he's preparing to preach. Imagine that I was coming in the sanctuary, and I, and I look exactly like I do now. I'm dressed up and all this. I've got my shirt on. My, I don't look like anything significant has happened to me. But, I tell, but then I tell you, this is why I'm late. So he was late to, the, to this preaching engagement. He said, here's why I'm late. When I was driving on the road, I, I pulled over on the side of the road, and, and uh, I had a flat tire, and so I had to change the flat tire. And when I was changing the flat tire, a lug nut, um, came rolling out into the road. I'm using lug nut illustrations, evidently. I used one last week, too. Anyway, the, so the lug nut rolled out into the road, and I went out into the road, and I picked up the lug nut, and as I was turning to walk back to the tire, I looked up, and there was this big horn, and a semi blasted me. I mean, it knocked me a good two miles up the road. I had to walk all the way back, and I finally got the tire, changed the tire, so I'm here, so I came. So thanks for being gracious to me, and, and uh, boy, I was, it was a close one. And all the congregation, he said, how would the congregation be looking at it? And he said, you're crazy, man. You're crazy. Look at you. You do not look like a man who's been hit by a semi-truck. I mean, if you were hit by a semi-truck, you'd be changed. And then Washer goes, and how big is God compared to a semi-truck? And some of you claim to be hit by God, and your life hasn't changed? Bogus. So that's, that's confrontation we're talking about. Like, when there's a crisis and there's confrontation... There should be confirmation. There should be evidence. God hid my life. Look at the evidence. It's not perfection for sure. Because I went through crisis. I've sinned. I'm coming to a Savior. But there should be evidence that, that he really has hit you. Number four, fourth step, confession. Here's one of the first evidences. And this is an ongoing evidence as well. Owning up to it. Confessing our sins. And we see this with Joseph's brothers. They've gone through the crisis They've been confronted, 
They're, Joseph is seeking confirmation, and notice what they say, beginning in verse 21. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. I love that. Oh, praise God for these brothers and what's going on in their hearts. Do you see what's happening? They're not just saying, yeah, we did a bad thing. We should probably feel bad about it. Man, that's a bad raw deal. Look what happened. The famine came. I mean, we're stuck here. No, they are putting themselves in Joseph's shoes for the first time in their lives. And they're saying, you know what? Remember when we were, when, remember when he was coming out of that well? Or he was down in that well, and he was screaming, please don't do this to me, please don't do this to me, please don't do this to me. And we were ignoring it, and when we were trying to, and we were trying to, you know, shove him in the direction of this agenda, and he was saying, brothers, don't do this, don't do this. And they had to literally fasten his hands together and put a thing around his neck to get him away. Do you remember when he was begging us to not send us away, not send him away? And we did nothing about it. We did nothing about it. We did not listen. Notice what they say. We saw the distress of his soul. And we didn't care. We didn't care. Do you know what con true conversion is? What leads us to true confession is seeing our greater Joseph, Jesus, thinking this way. When we, what leads us to true confession, true repentance, is say, you know, to God. In truth, we stand before God and say, you know what? In truth, we're guilty concerning our brother Jesus. We're guilty concerning him. Our brother Jesus is an honest man. He did nothing wrong. And we saw the distress of his soul bleeding, hanging on the cross. And we didn't listen. We didn't listen. For years, I ignored the gospel. For years, Jesus was holding out his wounded hands and saying, come to me. And I said, nah, not interested. We didn't care about the distress of his soul. We didn't care about his begging. Jesus begs you to come to him this morning. He begs you, if you're not a Christian, to come to him. He wants you in the family, if you're not a Christian here this morning. Come. And that will bring you to a point of true confession, right? Because there's, there's no change without confession, but there's no confession without recognition of wrong. And there's no recognition of wrong unless we understand the loving kindness of God. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. So where and how have you sinned against God? What do you need to confess to Him? And we see this. Crisis, confrontation, confirmation, confession. And these brothers are in a really, really good spot right now. They're in a really, really good spot. They're in custody, and they're getting changed. They're getting changed. In verse 22, listen to what Reuben says. Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen? So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Now we might think, See, here's Reuben. He's, 
he's kind of blame shifting, right? He's trying to say, no, it wasn't my fault. I didn't do anything. I told you guys to stop. And he did. It's true. 37, right? He was telling, don't do this. Don't do this. But we might think, well, Reuben's just trying to get out of it. I mean, he's trying to say, look, I'm innocent. You guys are guilty. I really didn't do anything. But it's clear that Reuben's undergoing a heart change too. Remember, selfish Reuben, verse 37 of this chapter, we'll get to it soon, said, kill my sons if I do not bring him back to you, put him in my hands. He, he loves Joseph, or loves Benjamin, and he's going to take care of him, and he's going to take care of what his father is entrusting to his care. So Reuben's changing too. Verse 23, they did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept, and he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And so there it is. Simeon's in custody, and the brothers are headed out. And so that's the first four. We'll go quickly through the last three. Number five, fifth step in the process of change is compassion. Compassion. And I'm going to try not to cry. All right, verse 25. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in a sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. And then they loaded their donkeys, verse 26, with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, my money's been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And this their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? Now, this is a very, this is, this is a very, very interesting turn of events because Joseph obviously is the one who's giving them their money back and he's showing great generosity to them and compassion to them, making sure they have enough to get home and they, they, they're going to make it back to Canaan alive. Right? But notice how Joseph immediately meets their confession with compassion. And that is our God. That is our God. If there's ever a portrait of the gospel, it's right here. You do not have to pay God back and get to work and try to reform. And, you know, God, I promise, I promise I won't do it again. Please just bless me. Please just bless me. No, you confess your sin. You acknowledge your wrong. God lavishes you with compassion. You receive it right away. No debt. No penance. It's all taken care of. Compassion overwhelms you. And so it is, Joseph is a model of our God in the way he demonstrates great compassion. Now, how do we explain their fear? Right? Because they open the bag, oh, what's happened? And they start trembling, according to verse 28. And they say, what has God done to us? Well, one commentator says, the guilt which had been aroused by the words of Joseph makes them see the hand of God in this act of kindness, and that makes them afraid. By the way, this is the first mention of God's name that these brothers have ever uttered to my knowledge, I mean, go back and read the rest of Genesis, but they're not talking about God a whole lot. And this, this they do talk about God. Perhaps it was Joseph's treatment of them that made them reflect on God's goodness to them and their own sin against him. Their fear is a godly fear. It comes from God's grace and generosity toward us. Ain't no fear like gospel fear, as somebody says before. As hymn writer and former slave trader John Newton wrote, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. That's what's going on here. Grace is teaching them to fear God. Kindness, generosity, because God's not going to get you following him recklessly, freely, joyfully without grace. And he lavishes compassion on us, 
And it's his grace that teaches our heart to revere him and fear him and awaken, come alive to him. The commentator goes on and says, God is both kind and severe. He shows kindness and severity so this family can be changed and then saved from death and become a great nation in Egypt. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Romans, asked the unrighteous, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And that's what's happening here. The compassion of Joseph is leading these brothers to repentance. We're going to see more of that next week, God willing, in chapter 43. So that's number five. Number six, communication. Communication. So they've, they're, they're, they're on the way back to Canaan, and then they get home, and they report to Jacob all that had happened to them. Picking up verse 29, when they came to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, the man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, we're honest men. We've never been spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more and the youngest in this day with our father in the land of Canaan. All true. Verse 33. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, by this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain from the famine and your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you're not spies, but honest men. And I'll deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. And so they give an honest communication to Jacob. These men are not known by being honest with their dad. They lie to their dad all the time. And this is 100% accurate. They're changing. And this is another, again, another process. So we see crisis, confrontation, confirmation, confession, compassion, communication. They tell the truth. They tell the truth about what's happened. There is absolute honesty with everything they are telling their father. And sharing our honest story of what God has done to and for us is another way we evidence that God has changed us. We will freely tell the good, the bad, and the ugly, everything that God has done to save us. And then finally, seventhly, conviction. Conviction. That is, they have new desires. There's been evidence that there's been real convictional change. Not conviction of sin, but convictions. They've changed the way they're operating. Look at verse 35. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle uh, of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you've bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. But notice how they respond, verse 37. Then Reuben said to his father, kill my two sons if I don't bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he's the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey, you were to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. And so that's where it ends. But you notice Reuben's conviction he says put him in my hands dad he'll come back so let me conclude with a word about our savior just as jesus joseph was exalted as we saw last week to the position of highest prominence besides pharaoh in the land of egypt in order to lead his brothers to repentance so jesus according to acts chapter 5 verse 31 was exalted to give repentance to god's people the purpose of Christ sitting at the right hand of God right now, in part, is to get repentance. To give repentance. Give it and get it. He's not going to get it if he doesn't give us. Repentance is a gift. 
No one repents without God giving them repentance. That's crystal clear in the Bible. We don't have the power within our own wills to repent. God gives us repentance and we repent. That's what Acts 5.31 says. Jesus gives repentance from his exalted position in heaven. And from his throne, Jesus puts his finger on our consciences. He speaks deeply into our lives. And he identifies the sin that we'd rather forget so that we might confess it to him and find true and lasting forgiveness. Jesus has come to deal with our guilt before a holy God. Sometimes he has to use severe mercies to bring bring us back to himself. And as this chapter ends, we are beginning to see the birth of those things which will make the reconciliation of these brothers possible. We see the birth of faith, the birth of true confession of sin, the birth of tender consciences, and a motion toward a developing loyalty. And in his kindness and severity, God is bringing them to repentance. As Joseph challenges their integrity and their loyalty, he brings them to a place of repentance, and he does for them what Jesus does for us by his word and spirit enabling us to see the depth of the sin in our hearts so that we might learn to appreciate his grace in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Genesis 42 and the picture that we have of our Savior and the way that he deals with us. And so we thank you for the opportunity to meditate on this this morning. We pray that you would instruct us and lead us in paths of righteousness for your namesake as our good shepherd, that you would come to us and deal with us wherever we are in this process. In a sense, as Christians, we never get over this. You are always bringing new crises into our lives. You're always testing us. You're always supplying us with compassion and forgiveness and ongoing mercy and grace. And we thank you for your fatherly care for us, that it's always after the the change into the image of Christ that you are working in us by virtue of our salvation. So draw near to us, encourage us, keep us Uh, with the right perspective on our lives as you work in us and through us for your glory, knowing that uh, you who called us uh, to yourself will perfect us and will complete the good work that you began in us. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and, and sing in response. Let's sing.